podcast appetite for distortion it is brando episode 202 202 coming up on today's program a little bit later on we're going to be doing the appetite for discovery segment kind of a mix of appetite for discovery and fan obsession with a co-worker of mine from q104.3 andrew mcnada he has a a column on q104.3 where he does interviews with rock stars like miles kennedy for example and he also has a band 100,000. So we'll be talking to him about his band, about GNR, of course. So that's a little bit later on. But first, the best thing short of interviewing Charles Manson himself, I guess if that's something that I would have wanted to do, uh, is to interview the actor who portrayed Charles Manson, Damon Harriman. If you've seen Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Quentin Tarantino's latest film, I saw that in theaters. It was a really, really good movie. Uh, Tarantino's films... Um, at least for me, he failed to, to disappoint. So he played Charles Manson in that, and actually, it was just very coincidental. We're going to talk about it. He also played right before that Charles Manson in the Netflix series Mindhunter. If you haven't seen Mindhunter, it is awesome. One of the, if, if you ask me a series to recommend on Netflix, that's up there. That is absolutely up there. I'm actually kind of bummed that season three, I think, is on hold because the director wants to do something else. Doesn't that suck when a show you really get invested in either gets put on hiatus or worse, canceled? Anyway, we had to talk to him about uh, his research into Charles Manson. Of course, uh, tie that into uh, the musical connection uh, Axl Rose had with, with Charles Manson. And Damon also promoting a new movie, Judy and Punch. If you haven't seen the trailer for that, it is really, really good. Uh, Damon is always playing some crazy characters, so we're going to talk to Damon about Judy and Punch and Charles Manson, and I believe he's calling up right now. Hey, Damon, how are you? Good, Brandon. How you doing? Now, before we, of course, we talk about your new movie, Judy and Punch, I would, of course, would like to talk about Charles Manson. Absolutely. As one typically does, just casually talk about Charles Manson. Yeah, right. Right. So I would love to know how you auditioned for these roles, because it, it's not like you just played Charles Manson once. You played him twice. And, and what kind of research did you do going into the uh, the background of the infamous Charles Manson? Uh, the Mindhunter audition came up uh, quite a long time before they shot. It was about six months beforehand. So the audition was um, it was pretty much uh, the, a, a version of or a big chunk of the, a version of the scene that you see in the end uh, product. Uh, so it was one of the biggest, in terms of size, one of the biggest auditions I'd, I'd ever done. Um, I think I ended up going in three on three separate occasions uh, before I found out I got the role and then pretty much went into a deep dive on everything I could possibly find. So certainly every piece of film and video that I could find, I really wanted to make sure uh, that I left no stone unturned in that regard. I, I wanted to see every version of him and 
Um, uh, yeah, so I just watched a lot of him. I've read uh, a, a number of books, um, listened to some podcasts, watched some documentaries. Uh, and it was great having that six-month lead-up time. I don't think I, it would have been a really tricky thing to do if it was cast like a normal TV guest role where you only really find out uh, one a week or so before getting the role. So it was great that I had a big, big lead-up like that. And then Once Upon a Time in Hollywood um, actually came about uh, – quite a few months into already knowing I was playing Manson in Mindhunter. So uh, it was just really lucky timing and that I, I already was, uh, was quite prepared for, to play the guy when I got that audition. Oh, that's cool. So it's not like Quentin Tarantino saw you in Mindhunter and then decided to use you. No. Amazingly, it was, it was all a complete coincidence. It was just that those two things happened to be, uh, to be auditioning around the same, uh, in the same year. And, uh, and, uh, you know, I was one of the guys short enough to play, to play him. (laughs) I, I sadly understand. I am five, six. Uh, I want to ask you before we move on to your, your new movie, the research you did into Charles Manson, specifically his music, because there's a six degrees of GNR bacon connection, uh, Guns N' Roses connection with Charles Manson, because they covered look at your game girl, one of Charles Manson's songs, uh, Axel would wear a Charles Manson shirt, Charlie Don't Surf, um, all throughout the early 90s. So, one, what kind of research did you do about uh, Charles Manson, the musician? And two, just overall, are you a, are you a Guns N' Roses fan? Well, yeah, I mean, uh, I, I certainly uh, Guns N' Roses, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm 50, so I was in my 20s when Guns N' Roses were, uh, well, probably teens and 20s, actually, when Guns N' Roses were coming out. Um, yeah, I was a fan. Absolutely. Um, and, uh, also a big ACDC fan. So it's kind of, you know, been kind of a, a real novelty seeing Axl Rose, uh, sing with them in the last few years as well. Uh, I, um, I, I uh, yeah, I guess in terms of Charles Manson's music, I was surprised at how good some of it was. I, I wasn't expecting that. Um, uh, you know, but, but at the same time, I guess it had to be decent because he really was being um, considered and, and auditioned for record contracts um, in the lead up to, you know, in the years before the, the, the murders. Um, I, I can see why he probably wasn't quite good enough to get a contract, but I can also see why there was interest in him. You know, a couple of his songs are, uh, you know, actually pretty good. Who knows what would have happened if he did get signed? Hmm. Perhaps uh, that's a movie for another time. Uh, but speaking of movies, can you kind of tell us about because the the new movie that you're doing, uh, Judy and Punch, is kind of like a retelling of an old folktale, Punch and Judy. Can you kind of uh, tell us about what the, the tell us about the film in this uh, this version? Yeah, it's not. It's not it, the the, the puppet, Punch and Judy puppet show is a traditional uh, puppet show that's very well known in the UK and other countries of the Commonwealth. So in Australia, it was known quite a bit too. It wasn't so well known in America, but it was a, a, a puppet show um, that started out as as marionette puppets and then became a a hand puppet show that one performer would do. And Punch and Judy were these, was this couple who essentially didn't really speak. They would just kind of make um, these strange noises to each other. And, and, and uh, the stories usually involved some kind of violence 
between the two, usually Punch to Judy. And uh, there was always a baby involved and a crocodile and a policeman and a dog and sausages. And all these particular things end up in the film Judy and Punch that, uh, that we made. Um, it's, it's essentially a reimagining of the story and, 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 a, and a kind of in, an invented origin story because Punch and Judy were never a real couple, but in the movie we kind of present them as if they were. And uh, so, so all the different tropes from the puppet show end up in the movie. Uh, Punch is a, is a kind of a, a self-obsessed narcissist, alcoholic, and uh, um, one night he, uh, he drinks a little too much and things go uh, pretty awry. And from that point on um, it, it becomes kind of a revenge tale with, with Judy uh, wanting to, to take her revenge on him. I'm telling you the, the trailer is intense. You know, after just reading the bio, I thought it was going to be about this couple who, you know, made marionette puppets and just hijinks, but it just ten- turns into a female revenge film. Did you have fun shooting it? It was a lot, yeah, it was a lot of fun. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's set in kind of the 1600s in England and uh, we've got these incredible costumes and, and because they're puppeteers, they also, you know, have these great puppet shows that they perform. And um, yeah, it was, it was a, an absolute joy uh, and getting to work with Mia Wasikowska and, uh, and our writer director, Mira folks. It was, it was a, it was a real treat for me. I'm assuming before, the world collapsed. This was supposed to be in theaters because it's now on demand. Yes, it was. It was, and 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 it and it did play uh, in theaters in the UK and in Australia. It played, and you know, it was in competition at Sundance. So that was certainly the uh, the intention. Um, but uh, yeah, of course, with COVID, everything's kind of changed, and uh, and now it's a, a video on demand. Which you know, for an Australian film, is playing in the US is actually not such a bad thing. And with everybody being at home at the moment, it it, it may uh, it turn out to be a better thing for the film anyway. You're right. Everyone is stuck at home, watching TV, listening to podcasts. Uh, so what projects do you have coming up that we can look forward to? Um, I, I recently filmed an Amazon uh, miniseries called The Underground Railroad, um, uh, which is based on the book, uh, directed by Barry Jenkins. Uh, it's an uh, incredible uh, story um, set in the South uh, in the 1800s. Um, and particularly, I think will be particularly um, resident. Uh, will, will, will be, uh, yeah. Given given what's happened in the last couple of weeks, um, and uh, that that'll come out later in the year. And then I'm, I'm going to be doing a, a film uh, in New Zealand, actually, a comedy in New Zealand in a couple of months' time. And they're one of the countries in the world that have actually uh, seemed to have defeated COVID altogether. So. Uh, it's kind of amazing uh, that, uh, that that's that's actually going to happen. But uh, yeah, I'm excited to, to to be able to go and uh, to do another job because I don't think any of us, certainly in this industry, knew when when uh, we're going to be able to work again. So uh, yeah, it's it's uh, I'm looking forward to it. I have a feeling there are going to be a lot of movies being filmed in New Zealand in the immediate future. <laughs> yes, I think you're right. I think you're right. Thank you so much, Damon. I know you have other interviews to get to, um, but thank you for your time. Really looking forward to the new film, and um, hopefully you'll play Charles Manson again because you're really good in that role. Thanks so much, Brandon. Appreciate it. So just because I'm still doing the Feel Feel My Quarantine subseries of the Appetite for Distortion uh, radio program, uh, you like that, Andrew? Yeah. I'm talking to- – <laughs> I'll get to uh, my coworker, Andrew McNutt, in a second, but if you- I like to do different – 
segments, not just, you know, interview people that may be promoting a movie or promoting an album, but kind of touch base with you, the Guns N' Roses fan. And of course, we have the fan obsession segment. Fan. And there's another segment if that fan has a band. Because as we know, as GNR fans, we're not getting new music right now. It'll happen at some point. But soon is the word, as they say. So that leads us to today's segment, Appetite for Discovery. I just want very appetite. Rather than just throwing a bunch of songs together that we think are fun, we're going over it, you know, with a fine-tooth comb and just working on everything to try it. That's the goal. Very appetite. For Discovery! And joining me for this segment is actually a co-worker of mine, Andrew Bignata, who... Right now, um, we're using Zoom so I can see him. Last time I saw you was in the Q1043 studios when you were training me to do the, the road show show for Jerry Martyr. <laughs> I don't know if you could call that training. That's, there's people who train people for a living. That's an insult to them, I think. <laughs> you press this button and you know everything else to do. <laughs> yeah, it was one of the, it's one of the easier shows that I've worked on. But it, you know what, though? It was more like this... These are the things that Jerry gets crazy about. These are the things that will scare the shit out of Jerry. <laughs> and because we, while we do have you know, a great listener base in New York who know Q1043, the number one you know, classic rock station in the, in the country, and uh, Jerry Martyr is a personality who's been, like all the personalities on there, have been doing radio for quite a while. And sometimes when you're, you know, you've been doing radio for 30, 40 years, you deserve... I don't know, thing, to get things done your way. It's good, especially if you're doing a remote broadcast. You need to have some, some common ground, like this is how and when we communicate. I don't blame Jerry for any of his uh, neuroses. They all, they all make a lot of sense to me. And oh, of course. Given how much could go wrong in a live broadcast, he's pretty cool about everything. Oh, absolutely. He's great. I mean... You're just hanging on by a thread if you're doing... <laughs> broadcast especially from a bar there's drunk people around i know i know and so that's what oh wow that seems like so long ago where you know you were training me for jerry's first i think he did a, a remote in upstate new york and i had a you know he had to connect to me in new york city to do uh you know the broadcast it live over the airs over the air and then now we're just all stuck at home it just seems like another lifetime ago it's just insane you asked me before we started recording when some when I started something, and I was like, dates, times, <laughs> <laughs> what year is it? <laughs> I know that's how I feel. Yeah, I used to wake up today, and it's like, I think I'm on Earth still. Yeah, um, I, what I asked you, and I think is a great segue because you are you do a lot of things. We're going to talk about your band, uh, One Hundred Thousand, which is. Just like an easy name to remember and cool and very unique. You know, yeah, I can imagine that being a song, but as a band, wow, I like it. it. It works, and you can, and we're going to talk about that. But something else that you did because I, I started to notice that when I would interview people, then I'd see Andrew Magnata would interview them as well, and I'm like, oh, what, what? and I started to learn because we, even though we worked together, I, I'd see you in the hallway. We really didn't know each other. And I was like, wow, Andrew's interviewing Miles Kennedy and interviewing Steel Panther, just like I am. And you also have your, well, while I have my podcast 
on the Q1043 website, you have your, your column on the on Q1043.com uh, uh, through iHeartRadio. And I had no idea because it's called Q1043's Q&A, and it's spelt the same way as GNR with the apostrophe. And your logo is the Chinese democracy version. You know, instead of GNR, it says Q&A, and it's awesome. So you're obviously a huge Guns N' Roses fan, and that's why it's, you know, I'm, I'm glad to finally get you on the podcast to talk about GNR. Yeah, I mean, it's, writing has always been a passion of mine. Uh, radio was a huge part of what uh, ignited my love of music and of bands like Guns N' Roses uh, and Pink Floyd and many others. Um, and podcasting is such a great medium because it, it encourages more conversation. So this could be a Guns N' Roses podcast. This could be a Milwaukee Bucks podcast. <laughs> I, it, especially now when we're all stuck in our houses, having a good conversation with somebody is worth making time for. That is a true words. That's, that is very true. And the reason why you bring up the Bucks, I got, <laughs> who was it? It was, um, I've been doing some shows recently or podcasts because shows makes it sound like I'm a musician, which I'm not. You are. Uh, I've been doing some podcasts recently with Mark Alexander Erber, who's the CEO of Golden Robot Records. And he has a bunch of GNR um, past and present artists on his label, like Gilby Clark and Frank Farrar. And as we do Zoom episodes, I kind of try to have a backdrop. That's the big thing now. That's the cool thing. What's a Zoom backdrop? And also, I want to dress for the occasion. I have a lot of Guns N' Roses shirts, so I go through a lot of them. And I also have tank tops. And while I am not uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger by any means, um, I, I only show off my, my sleeves, my, my, my arms, because I have tattoos. And I don't know. I always like tattoos. I mean, uh, rockers show off tattoos. Why can't I? So he made fun of me. He, he called like my last, uh, I was wearing like a GNR tank top. He called it a, a singlet. <laughs> so, I mean, they're all in the laundry now, all my GNR tank tops. So right now I also have a ton of basketball jerseys from when I was a kid that still fit me. So I'm wearing a vintage uh, Milwaukee Bucks, Glenn Robinson jersey. So you have to coordinate your Zoom background with whatever the home court of the team your basketball jersey is. <laughs> That's what you have to do. I have to see if there's a six degrees of Kevin Bacon or GNR Bacon rather between Glenn Robinson and Guns <laughs> N' Roses. That that's been a that's been the challenge because I'm glad that you noticed you know because you seem to be a sports guy as well. I I want to be able to connect and get a sports person to talk about like I want to get Mike Piazza on the show so bad. Oh yeah. Somebody, okay. uh, you know there are plenty of athletes that love Guns N' Roses. Billy Corgan used to hang out with Rodman. And then had this feud with Axel, so. <laughs> I mean, if I can get Billy or Dennis. I should, you know what, just for shits, I could reach out to Dennis Rodman. You never know, man. <laughs> that, that is very true. That is very true. So. Uh, documentaries that you never know with Rodman. <laughs> I've gone further. Um, it's been four years, because I've been an iHeart for five. I've been doing this podcast thing for four. And I never would have thought I'd still be doing it and interview people. You know, like, uh, just to start off small, like Pauly Shore. I was so happy. That was a bucket list interview. But even, you know, like Matt Sorum recently, I, I never thought. So you just never know. Was there an interview that you've done that you were like, I can't, like, whoa, that kind of blew you away? Like, what are some of your top interviews you've done? Um, I mean, for the Q&A column, getting to talk to James Labrie from Dream Theater was a big 
thing for me. And I, I had interviewed John Petrucci a couple of times from that band. Um, some reason I always wanted to talk to James. He's like the guy from that band that kind of gets the least respect, mm. but just something about his place in that band, which is a hugely influential metal band at this point, just really fascinated me. And I really wanted to pick his brain. Um, and of course he's like the nicest guy in the world. Uh, we had a great conversation. He kept me on, he kept me on the phone, you know, it was one of those things, which is, is, is I like those. Um, and so it's kind of one that had sort of been on my mind for a while that I, that I got to do. And that was probably about a year ago. Okay. That's cool. And that's actually a kind of a good segue because dream theater, I, I guess I haven't, from my memory, I don't know if they have been mentioned on this podcast, maybe Mike Portnoy, because he's always in the news. But my radio career, uh, I technically started when I was in college at Hofstra. And my first show was called The Aggressive Edge. And that's it's still going on. It's like the, the heavy metal hardcore show at, at Hofstra. And it was the only place in New York that would other than like those stations that just shove heavy metal Sunday nights, you know, when no one's really listening. Yeah. It would be every day from 11 PM to 1 AM. And that was my education to dream theater. And when you said this was a great timing to interview you finally, uh, that your band 100,000, that's was the, the first thing that came to my head. I'm like, this sounds like a band I would play on the aggressive edge. This sounds like a band that uh, a metal hard rock band I, I don't know if I'm labeling it properly, but just like that would be worthy of, you know, an aggressive edge, you know, kind of platform. So it, it's, a, it's, it's great stuff. So you can, you can kind of tell us about the band that you're in, uh, 100,000 and more about them. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm like the worst at promoting my own music. Like okay. I was having a conversation with, with somebody for my column for Q and A. And he asked me like what the band was like. I explained it as like a progressive heavy rock or metal band. Um, but I didn't tell him what the band was actually called. <laughs> because talking, music of God. Describing, I, I think a lot of musicians have this where describing your own music is really uncomfortable because, because you, uh, you can hear your own influences, but you also hear where your own music diverts from those influences. So, um, like a blanket definition is yes, we're definitely a metal band. Um, and I think we would fit in on the aggressive edge in moments, but there's also a very melodic side to this band that I'm super proud of where we we're trying to take the best of, of all worlds. And, and there's some of the appetite for destruction sort of aggression. And then there's some of like the, the Pink Floyd, Dark Side of the Moon, sophistication, uh, yes, close to the edge, or or even mm. dream images and words um, type type moments. So what, cool. we're, what we're doing this year is we're putting out, uh, we did a concept record that was inspired by the Zodiac. Mm. No one in the band believes in astrology. It was just a an interesting point at which to sort of create music. So we were like went sign by sign, talked about what the, the classical interpretations of these Zodiac signs is and tried to 
make music from that. And then after the music was done, me and the one guitar player and the singer started creating some sort of a narrative arc. So it's not just like, here's a Leo and Leos are so, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a much deeper sort of uh, contemporary narrative than that. And so well, it sounds like a dream theater approach. You know. It is, and you know they have one of the best prog metal albums of all time. Seems from a memory from '99, uh, and that is they're they're a band that that comes up a lot when we're talking about uh, our ambition for our music. So, absent a record label, which we are, we decided it would be appropriate to put out one song a month corresponding with the Zodiac sign for the, huh. so we're in uh, early June right now. So the Zodiac calendar starts in March with Aries. So that was the first song we released. Then we put out Taurus a month ago or two months ago, Gemini last month. And this month in a couple of weeks, we'll be releasing our song cancer. Um, and you cool. can, on all the streaming platforms we just released the music video for Taurus today we would have liked to release it when the song came out but because of the lockdown and everything we couldn't finish it um but that's out today actually as we're talking did you well a i know how you're keeping busy during the lockdown you know working on a song a month but did you did you so that was filmed all before the quarantine because it's you guys just rocking out in, in the woods i was wondering that yeah. Yeah, that was all filmed before. The, the whole album was, the, was mixed and mastered by last October. We spent like two years working on it. It's, oh, wow. Okay. It's a culmination of a lot of work. We stopped playing shows. People were asking us, are you guys still a band anymore? Um, you know, we had this idea, and the further we got on it, the stronger we felt about it. Like, oh, this could really be sort of a breakthrough. So we just decided to stop playing shows, focus on doing the record. Hmm. Um, and we were about to start playing shows and then coronavirus came in um, and we were not able to do that. So that was kind of the impetus for just going ahead and starting to put out the music because we had all this great artwork too. And what do you, in your, you play bass? Do you, what, do you like, what, is there any backup vocals? What do you do for? Yeah, you know? I do some background vocals, uh, quote unquote live. I mean, we haven't played a show for so long, but. But yeah, I, I do sing backgrounds live. Um, I, I write a lot of the vocals and the lyrics for the band, as I did on our first record. Um, and you know, with my bandmates, I write and arrange the music. It's a, it's a very all-around collaborative thing. And I think if people um, check out the, some of the music that we've put together, the songs are... It's, it's hard to imagine one person writing all of this stuff. Yeah, that that seems it seems like such an undertaking. I mean, well, you're saying it ta it's taken two years, but even for you know one person said it's taken two years. No, it didn't. Yeah. I wouldn't imagine this is it's a lot. The Just research line up together took like five years. Oh. <laughs> five guys. It was um, the first record was me, the one guitar player Alex, and our drummer Kurt. Uh, we started working together over nine years ago at this point the three of us, we filled out the lineup twice and people uh, filtered in and out. We recorded the record 
before it came out, we uh, parted ways with our singer, found our, our current singer, Rich, who's been in the band now four or five years, who's amazing. Um, yeah, he's a great voice. And then about three years ago, our other guitarist, Greg, who uh, is the one who kind of looks like Slash. Okay. Well, without being half black. Uh, okay. And then, and then he, uh, he joined the band. And, and Greg is a killer singer, amazing producer. And as you can see and hear on the song Taurus, where he has a pretty amazing solo. Who has influenced you as far as bassists? Like, I'm assuming, you know, Dream Theater kind of like, who, who are some of your favorite bassists? Dream Theater is a big influence on me musically. I, I wouldn't say that their bass player, John Myung, is really an influence on me just because Dream Theater music is so complicated. There's only like, I think there's only one Dream Theater song that I actually sort of know. Um, I think Justin Chancellor from Tool is a big influence on me. Nice. It's kind of like there's a lot of bassists, uh, Chris Squire from Yes, who are like, mm. I'll take one thing from, there's the one aspect to that song, that sound, that approach that I really like. I'm a big Getty Lee fan, John Paul Jones. Um, I mean, it's hard to think of a song like Sweet Child of Mine without also singing Duff's bass line. Right. Exactly. That's where I was getting to. <laughs> exactly. I mean, and I don't know if you if you met Duff when he came by a few months. I didn't. Wonderful guy. As as friendly as as he seems. It's like with some of these, you know, we're privileged to have to have gotten to meet some of our heroes uh through what we do. And so many of them are just so generous and laid back. It's hard to imagine like the hardcore drug problems these guys had, mm. <laughs> you know. I know because like because like the story, the backstory is so dark. Yeah, and you didn't just completely become a new person after you got sober. Like there had to be some in between. Sure, you know you, you watch, like, the the Doors movie. Jim Morrison seemed like a nightmare. Like why were guys in a band with him? He couldn't actually sing. He had to be a nice guy. <laughs> I love the Doors. I mean, he could sing in his Jim Morrison kind of way. Morrison way, like he figured it out and give him some credit for that. But <laughs> you watch, uh, if you watch Duff's, um, uh, would you call it a documentary? There was. Yeah, I know what you're like, how to be a man. He's kind of like reading the yeah, story and performing it, behind. You know, it's, it's pretty heavy. It it really is, and considering like just the shape he's in now, how active he is now, and I will say I took um, the last concert I was at before you know Armageddon. It was in October. My girlfriend and I we went down to Austin, Texas for Austin City Limits, and it was her first time seeing Guns N' Roses. And she goes, "Who's the hot one?" I knew what she was talking about. I'm like, "That's Duff. That's Duff. All right." So he's not talking about. Like, Fortis. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. He's 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 cut, but no, it's it's Duff is like a, a supermodel now. I mean, and his wife literally is a supermodel, so it works. It's hard to to figure out which one of them is better looking. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I mean, they make me hate my life a little bit. But and Susan's been on the show, uh, my podcast, a few times. Very sweet. But Duff, yeah, I 
I was close. I'm, I'm hoping one day I'm trying to build up the, the street cred because uh, I did have an interview with him that kind of got canceled because, I don't know, some people can see like a Guns N' Roses podcast and freak out like I'm just some sort of like troll fanboy. But like you and, and how bands, I thought about this when you said how bands don't like to describe themselves. It's like how I sometimes don't like to describe my podcast. It's like, yeah, it's a Guns N' Roses podcast. But we talk about, you know, like my last episode, we talked about Black Lives Matter with Roberta Freeman. So I'll take it different ways. Um, so I'm hoping one of these days, and I, and I build up enough cred with Susan that it'll, you know. You got a I'll, bit of scoop from her, though. It's so funny. <laughs> that's what you must get. You, you must love when your stories get picked up, right, for news outlets. Yeah. All she said was that there, like, I heard new music and it's epic. It wasn't very detailed. And it was the most viral of any of my interviews in so many different languages. It was, it blew me away. It blew me away. And she just gave me a freebie. Like, I didn't even ask, yeah. but I think she w- knew that I wanted to know. And she was like, eh, here you go. Thanks. Thanks. <laughs> and I, I, I think I said to her, I'll publish this after, I'm like, I wish more um, outlets would also talk about her book within that story. She's, and they're like, no, it's all, all, pre- all good press is good. So they, they were very happy with it. So you get keep the- building up good stuff with the McKagan family until I get the duff, I guess. You get the sense with the, the band now that there's a lot of um, there's a lot of like non-disclosure agreements that yeah. went to making this reunion happen. I know that for a fact. And yeah. uh, whenever these guys do interviews, whether it's Slash or Duff or, or Richard, um, they're Frank. Frank, yeah, Frank. Frank's been doing a few uh, recently. They're all just trying to remember, like, what did my lawyer say I could say about this? <laughs> You know what's, and I'll be honest, I don't even necessarily need to say this, but I just want people to know the kind of, you know, if, if any of them are listening or whatever, how I operate. And I did this with Frank last episode. Before we start recording, is there anything you don't want to talk about? You can always, you know, say pass or whatever. I try to, fans may not like to hear that because they want those hard question, questions asked, but my goal is just to have a good time. And maybe down the road when a relationship is built, I'll get those, you know, crying Barbara Walter kind of interviews. But in the meantime, I just want to have a, you know, let's just talk about whatever with some cool people. You know, well, the whatever, including Guns N' Roses, but to a, a comfortable degree. And so especially that, if you're not in the same room with somebody, um, Zoom is much better than talking to someone over the phone. Yeah, it's changed um, the game. And I hope that instead of doing phoners uh, in the future, I can do more, more Zoom interviews with people. Um, but it's hard to get that, that trust. Sure get that Barbara Walters, Mark Marin moment. Yeah. Not in the same room with somebody. If they can't see your body language and, and hear your voice with their ears, you know. Right. And if, if it happens to be the first time you're interviewing them, the conversation, they, don't, they might not know who you are. So as you know, as a professional interviewer, there's so many variables that, that go into it. But that's awesome. You really have, you know, you, you really have the trifecta going. You're writing, you're playing, you're, you know, obviously working for, for iHeart. You're, it's pretty, it's pretty cool, man. <laughs> Still have a job. Grateful for that. Yeah. 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 Me too. The, I'm very lucky that we can do our jobs from home. It's, it's, uh, it's crazy. And so, you know, that's why I try to, this is keeping me sane and I appreciate the listeners that say that the podcast is also keeping them sane. So it's a, it's a win-win, but, uh, of course, just speaking about, we got to talk about GNR. Um, what shows have you been to? Like what, how many times have you seen them? Never seen them. What? 
I'm, I'm hanging up right now. I'm just kidding. Uh, you've never seen Guns N' Roses ever? I mean, before, before Slash and Duff were back in the, van, the band, I didn't really have... Uh, it didn't really seem like it was, it was that much more than a cover band, you know? I would see, see Axl Rose solo before I would see Bumblefoot with Guns N' Roses. As great as Bumblefoot is, I mean... All right. I mean, you're not alone. I I will see them if we can ever go to shows again. I will see them again. Um, I mentioned Sweet Child of Mine earlier. Right. I don't ever want to hear that song again. (laughs) (laughs) And I think a lot of people feel that. I will will go to the show assuming that Sweet Child of Mine is last. or It's it's not last. No, it's not even. It's like somewhere in the middle usually. Just, I just need to, it's a great song, an important song for, for me in terms of give, giving me sort of the, um, the doorway into the band to picking up Appetite for Destruction when I did. Um, I'm sure it was because of that song. But like, that's a disc that I wore out. And anytime I hear it come on the radio, I'm just like, ah, <sighs> this again. <laughs> and I, 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 I think some of the guys in the band, I think Slash certainly feels that way to some degree. Yeah. I mean, you know, he, he enjoys playing Coma and Estranged more than he has to play Sweet Child. But I, when I saw Slash and Miles last summer, they played, okay, you see them. They played Night Train. Nice. I was like, that's, that's the perfect. There's not really any deep tracks to me from Appetite, but that's a, that's a perfect one to throw into a set. Um, of the uh, the stuff he's been doing basically for the last ten years. Okay, so you've seen you've seen uh, Slash live at least. Yes. Yeah. Well, that's cool, and I'm glad you said this because um, talking to another radio guy, there are obviously songs that we hear more than the regular person. Right. Sweet Child of Mine. I usually don't change the station. What? Oh, when I do listen to the radio, um, but the ones I, I I don't listen to anymore. Live and Let Die. It's uh, it's just been played to death. Yeah, and knocking on heaven's door. Honestly, those are, I would be okay with those being taken out of the set list. I know that may be sacrilege, but it's just being a radio guy. Uh, I've just heard them too much. However, welcome to the jungle. I can, it's never enough. It is never enough. It's you know, Paradise City. Yeah, but welcome to the jungle every single time. I was it's about just, to say that. It's 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 amazing because obviously I probably have heard that more than Live and Let Die on the on the radio, even though both the radio hits. Sure. But welcome, I'm, I'm just I'm never got sick of. <laughs> it's just a little bit shorter. It allows for you to hear it more. But um, it, it's it's funny because like through my job, I also see a lot of the people who are complaining about how we play this song too often, and it's like, right. how do you think we feel, dude? <laughs> literally every time we play it. <laughs> right. Well, yeah, I think people need to understand it's radio is kind of like what TV cable TV has become where people don't watch it all day and it's only in, in segments and uh, in, in, in time frames, which is why they, you know, they play nothing. TV plays nothing but the office or King of Queens. And because now you have the option to go to Netflix or Hulu or whatever and, and listen and watch whatever you want. Same thing now with audio. You can listen to the music anywhere you want, podcast anywhere you want. So they try to cast the widest net, the most popular, you know, that's why you see Comedy Central play Step Brothers 
every day, all day. And I love Step Brothers, but it's like, don't you have other programming? So that's that's at least how I I think of it. And, and I think the interesting thing too with a genre like classic rock is that when you hear the song, you might honestly hear uh, "Live and Let Die" two times in a week on a station like Q and a four three. But every time you hear it, you're remembering the two thousand other times you've heard that song. Good point. Whereas if it's a if it's a, you know top forty radio, you might be hearing the same song every hour and a half. But you Very know, true. years and years of history mm. with that song that contributes to your to your burnout. I, I I don't know why this never occurred to me. That's an excellent point, Andrew. Thank you. That was good. That that that's actually very true. I've responded to a lot of complaints. <laughs> <laughs> Haven't we all? But I don't know why. I was like, yeah, that's because it triggers that you've been hearing this song for 40 years or, you know, for me, you know, 36 years or whatever. Uh, but yeah, you're right. Because- like, like a year ago, two years ago, I was like, I can't name one foreigner song. And yet I think I've heard every foreigner. Feels <laughs> <laughs> like the first time that you've heard foreigner. Zero. Sorry. No, now yeah. I could yeah, because I've been... At the time, I was like, what What kind of band is Foreigner? Like, <laughs> who's in the band? What do any of them look like? Um, That's why I love, because how old are you? Um, I think you're around my age. 31. 31. Oh, so you're younger than me. Okay, I'm, I'm 36, I said. So it's interesting. I mean, it's still ballpark, being a younger guy, getting into a classic rock genre in those bands that, you know, that uh, Ken Dashow knows and grew up with and Jim Kerr grew up. And us are like, you got to first learn about them. Like, who are these guys? Who are these old fogies? And you just you go, and then you kind of feel stupid because, you know, they earn their rockness. That's one of the things about Ken Dashow that makes him so great at his job. Um, and I, I also, we mentioned podcasting. He has a podcast that I'm sort of the producer of. So I'm on it sometimes. Ken Dashow's Beatles Revolution where we talk about Beatles and, and sort of like, much like what you're doing through the Guns N' Roses lens, he, he talks about Beatles. Um, and he, he's told me that he runs his, his radio show, his FM show. Like, um, he knows there's people listening and they're young and they've never heard Come Together before. Right. Um, and if he has some fact about Come, come Together that's interesting – Someone who's our age or older, who's heard this song a billion times, you know, we know the story, we know the song, but if you're just getting into it, you have no idea. And, you know, you and I were both there at some point. Classic rock radio was part of the reason I like music at all. Same. Yep. Um, Because the turn of the century, new metal, while I've in retrospect sort of appreciated it, um, at the time, it didn't do anything for me. Pop uh, of of the late '90s, early 2000s was not something I cared for, um, and even a lot of the rock of that era that I was exposed to, anyway, um, I either wasn't ready to like, I wasn't ready to take understand it, or it's just just wasn't my thing. So I got into classic rock and then into the contemporary music from there. So I sort of started in like 1967 and then worked my way forward like up until the mid 90s and then i got into contemporary music bands that are actually my age 
that. Sure. I had the nice mix because you, I'm sure you were able to hear, um, even though it was a New York station, but K-Rock, right? Were you able to get that in Jersey? You can get it in Jersey. I was from an area of Jersey, Sussex County, where there's like, there's like mountains in between. Oh, okay. That's the northernmost county in Jersey. So you couldn't even really get Q1043 until you came down from Oh, okay. Because I grew up on Q1043 and K-Rock, and it was a mix of the old and the new. And me being slightly older, I think that makes it, you know, grunge still had an impact on me. But I love that GNR could be played on both. And that's what really attracted me to to GNR, because whatever station I listened to, the rock station, it was GNR for both ends. Uh, But with Ken, it's great. As I'm it took me seven years to get full time in radio because I went the on air route, which is just it's difficult. I mean, now we can put on Zoom. Everyone, and their mother has a podcast. Right. Back back in my day, uh, back in my day, you had to earn the right to be on the air. So I would listen to Ken, you know, doing overnights, board hopping, you know, and, and still being awake in time for breakfast with the Beatles on Sunday morning at Q and at the time. Yeah, I, I was just I would sit in my car uh, and listen to him like outside. Um, when I was getting off an overnight, this is when this is like inside nerd talk. So when WOR, which is the oldest signal, right in New York, I believe so. Yeah, it was at that time it was owned by Buckley Broadcasting, and it was down by Wall Street. And this is when Occupy Wall Street was going on. So I were, I, would, I would do overnights at WOR, and then after that, I would go drive down to Sirius XM, in, uh, you know, Forty Second Street, I believe, and kind of just take an hour nap before my, my board op shift would start for the Catholic channel. This is just, I, I, I've been through a lot <laughs> and I would listen to Ken and he would just inspire. I've told him this. He would inspire me as an on-air personality and how he made Beatles feel new to me. And I, I, cause I, my parents got me into the Beatles, but it's not like they sat me down and taught me about the Beatles, like listening to Ken did. So I tried to do the same thing with, with Guns N' Roses. I mean, I, I know I'm not an old guy and I didn't see them back in the day, but I get on those seasoned veterans. I shouldn't keep calling them old. Seasoned veterans, people who are older than me who saw GNR back in the day, they get their perspective or they get younger fans who became just GNR fans uh, during the Chinese democracy era. They look at it through all different perspectives because everyone, I don't know, it's like, it's just fun. It doesn't matter when you grew up. If you love the band and the music, the connection is there regardless of, yeah. The demographic, I believe so. That, that's and, and you pursue it. And that's yeah. what's great about rock is it has such a history. Um, like I was listening, I went from like the Beatles, the Stones, Zeppelin, Black Sabbath, to like Stevie Ray Vaughan and Clapton Cream, to then back to like Lightning Hopkins, Muddy Waters, and like John Lee Hooker. And then forward to... <laughs> To Guns N' Roses and Pantera and Soundgarden, you know, Um, just because I I wanted to know uh, what what artists did these people like, um, what what brought them to the point that they were making the music that that um, that they were making. And and we're talking about Ken, who's like the quote unquote Beatles expert of New York. But the. Guns N' Roses would not have been the band that they were without the Beatles and Axl Rose's um, acolyte-like devotion to Paul McCartney. Yeah, I, I, like the, I like the way you phrased that. Nirvana it, wouldn't be the band that 
they ended up beating being if Kurt Cobain wasn't obsessed with John Lennon, right? That's very true. Uh, sadly, since they both died tragically. Yeah, that was, actually- uh, that was an, an unnecessary commentary by me, Rist is there. Uh, but no, you're, you're absolutely right. One thing I just got to get out of my head because it, for us younger, because sometimes I'll, I'll get like, you know, you weren't there for this. And I, I know that. I want to learn. And I one time I made this mistake on when I was on the air at WPDH in Poughkeepsie, New York. I never, I heard this song by Led Zeppelin, but I never saw it spelt. So I pronounced it Dire Maker instead of Jermaker. Like it, so, and, and I remember somebody called me up and he's like, "Kid, if you want to be on this station, you got to." <laughs> I, I was so. I, I would. I would not have backsold that one if I. I, I would have just ignored it. <laughs> I learned my lesson. I learned my lesson clearly. If I don't know how to read it, which is quite often, I um, I, f- I find a way just not to, Even, just not to say it. How does that guy know? They didn't announce. They don't announce the songs on the albums. He just knows it because some DJ read it. You know, back in the day, right? Sure, sure. But as the DJ, we should know. No, we should know. <laughs> like now, I yeah. Get this. Um, when I was doing news, I, I used to be a news anchor at a little station in Jersey and people are very precious about the, how to pronounce like their street. Yeah. Yeah. Street with like a weird name that's Polish or native American or German. It could be anything. And it's like, well, how do you know how to say it? Cause just people there say it like that. Well, how do they learn? You know, none of them were around when the street was named. I usually I would go around and, and ask you know a fellow DJ how do you say this how do you say this town and if no one is around I'm just like fuck it <laughs> I got I got to try something here oh the worst you want to hear the worst this is when I was in college uh, I never saw how Al Qaeda was spelt so I said Al Qaeda or something like something really stupid it's like a Mexican restaurant I don't know whatever I was in college and stupid I still mess up names well, but uh, now I make it part of my charm the thing. Um... The newscasters in college, you could always tell uh, who was not, who was just p- trying to be a DJ and didn't care about journalism. Oh, yeah, yeah. But say in their newscast, indicted <laughs> instead of indicted. Oh. All right, you're just going through the motions and you didn't even read what you wrote on the newswire. I want people to know when I mess up, I, I give it a, the old college try. I. I I, in one of my past lives, I did public address announcing for uh, youth figure skating. I don't know. I, I had a connection. And I figured, oh, this will look cool on my resume. And this was when I was living in Brooklyn. And it's a very uh, heavy Russian population there. And all the skaters are Russian. And it doesn't matter if the kids are like five or six or whatever. I want to get their names right. So I would get one of the parents on the phone and I would write out the names of Russian uh, phonetically so I would get it right. So I, I, I do try. <laughs> I do try. So a couple other things before we get out of here. I know we, you said you don't, you, you can live without a sweet child of mine, but do you have a favorite Guns N' Roses song? My mind always goes, I don't think this is actually my favorite, but Mr. Brownstone has a special place in my heart. Um, I only learned what that song was actually about within... An embarrassing number of years ago. Okay. <laughs> like much later than I should have. But it wasn't like today's years old, right? No, not today. Okay. Okay. <laughs> uh, but that's always been a favorite. 
Um, I do love the intro to Welcome to the Jungle. That really doesn't get old. Um, and I would say that the GNR Live and Let Die is pretty close to the Paul McCartney version. Mm. It's Paul hard to... I don't... I don't, it's not a song that I love from Paul McCartney. I think it works better almost when GNR does it. I bet a lot of people would agree with you. I, I just think it's very interesting that GNR could cover a very famous, famous artist and that becomes one of their biggest songs. You know, obviously, yeah. speaking of Paul McCartney, it's just a little GNR twist can make, it, can make it a hit. Very interesting. I think um, back to their roots as just being like a, like a true garage band. One of the things that made them so cool is they had all this punk rock, classic rock education um, that they turned in. Like none of their covers sound like, oh, we're going to try and do it. But like what, like the rock and roll version, like, like every band has like, oh, we're going to play beat it, but it's going to be rock. It's like the original was actually a rock song. So you're not really doing anything. Right. Rose is just the, the touch of those five guys. Or, or six guys, whatever the case may be, uh, just makes it sound different. And then yeah. any, any huge leaps in the arrangement, they're just doing a good job of their thing. You may not have a, uh, a specific Guns N' Roses memorabilia or T-shirt. I don't know if you do, but do you have like a favorite piece of band um, memorabilia that you have? And anything that, you know, from your, one of your favorite artists, do you have a, whether it's a t-shirt or a ticket that you kept, something autographed, is there something that you really um, hold on to that's like your prized possession? My first electric guitar, this old Stratocaster style black and white guitar, um, after I sort of outgrew it, I kept it. And then in college, when I started meeting artists that were like really important to me, I would have them sign it. So now it's actually at my wife's office at my wife's office at work in a case, but I keep it there just in case I meet anyone who's like super cool and I have them sign it. Okay. A bunch of signatures on there. Um, I've got John Petrucci, Joe Satriani's signatures. Um, I have uh, Max and Igor Cavalera from Sepultura on there. Okay. Michael Ockerfeld from Opeth signed it. Um, there's there's one or two others that I'm that I'm forgetting, but that's like uh, it, it it's maybe not memorabilia because I would never give it away, but that's like sort of a tribute to um, something that I keep around. That's like these and are it's unique to you. It's totally unique to you. It's unique to me. It's a combination of artists that no one probably there's not a huge Venn diagram of people who are into all of those bands uh, like I am. But it's it's like a great symbol of of my appreciation of rock. Right on, very cool. Well, Andrew Magnata from uh, Q1043, I really appreciate your your time today. And uh, if you haven't checked out, you're not aware of One Hundred Thousand. I love this concept album that they're they're doing. So One Hundred Thousand, you guys are in every streaming service. You have a Facebook, right? Are you a Twitter and Instagram? I assume Instagram and uh, Instagram and Twitter is at oht band. 100,000 was too many characters. Okay, sure. He banned. 
um, the, the Zodiac album, we're putting out new songs, new content every month of the year. And it's not as lame an idea, a concept as it sounds like it is. <laughs> it, it really doesn't. It really doesn't. And I know people are bored these days and not everybody likes to listening to podcasts. There are people that just wish they had a, um, my interviews transcribed. So if you want to read interviews, uh, go to Q1043, uh, the Q&A section. And you can read, you know, with Steel Panther, and uh, you can you write a lot of, and not just like interviews. Oh, Clint L- Lowry from Seven Dust, who I've had on the show as well. But sometimes you'll you'll write like you know generic art, you know, articles like rock articles about the Hall of Fame. And- Funny thing about Clint, he helped us produce the vocals on our first album. Oh, okay, cool. and. Uh, Seven Dust was a big influence on on our band, especially on the first album. We actually knew Clint a little bit. Our drummer, Kurt, played keyboards in Seven Dust like five years ago. They were doing an acoustic tour for a a record that they put out. Um, And Kurt was their live keyboard player. Um, So Clint actually had a hand in helping create our first record. So if you want to check us, we've got these... Uh, three new songs, and then there's a whole full-length record from a few years ago that people can listen to. Well, I'm glad you're keeping busy, man. I know we uh, we all are. This is it's it's weird. I got off my my weekly phone meeting job meeting earlier, and my boss is like, I don't know when we're going back to the studio. I, I don't know. So this is what it is, or at least right now. But it's, so it's good. At least uh, I know we're, we're putting out the audio, but it's good to see your face uh, via Zoom as we record this. Yeah, I'm just trying to go outside. Once a day, maybe. <laughs> I'm like once a week. I got to do <laughs> It's so bad. I, I weeks like that too. But I, I think it's, um, it's, it's we're, all, good. we're all struggling with our mental health. And sometimes yeah. it's just nice to go outside, leave mm-hmm. your headphones at home, um, and just like look at how peaceful it actually is. There's a lot of really frustrating stuff going on in the news um, and on social media. And if you remove all of that, you realize that it's, it's actually, there's places where it's okay. <laughs> Just uh, Agreed. Absolutely agreed. So go outside and listen to this podcast, maybe not in headphones, just play it out, you know, so everybody can listen. One of those. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You'd be like our radio Raheem and just, okay. Kind of, yeah. Blast the, uh, the podcast on, on a ghetto blaster or something like that. I'll be, that'll go over well. That won't annoy people at all. Uh, Andrew, thanks. Um, I hope to see you soon. Yes. I'll just put it that way. All right. Thanks, Brando. It was good talking. about it. So that does it for episode 202 of Appetite for Distortion. I will say, if you would like to get some music along with your podcast, stick around. Uh, Andrew has given us the new song we were talking about, Taurus. So I will attach that to the end of this episode. So stick around after the outro. And before I get out of here, I want to acknowledge all of you how amazing you have been with the response from the last episode with Roberta Freeman. It was a very, very hard conversation, not just for her, but for me as well to talk about race, to talk about Black Lives Matter, to talk about you know people that you are fans of and to really get into one in a million, to for her to open up about the, the racial slur that James Hetfield used um, in, in passing and you can see, you can hear how much it still hurts her all these years later. And I said this on social media, and I'll say it again here. 
it's like with any sort of allegations that happened decades ago, you could be, oh, that happened decades ago. And sure. And I, but I don't want to be like the rest of what society seems to be like, oh, you did this a long time ago. We should shame you, apologize this. No, no, no. That's not my intention. I think ideally for me, the, the coolest thing would have been like if James heard this and privately spoke to Roberta and like we never heard about it. It was just two people talking about it because while I don't know James Hetfield, I would like to think that he's not a racist person. Perhaps he said something off color that may have been more accepted at a certain time, whether that was right or wrong that it was accepted at that time is another conversation, but it's something that is still hurting Roberta. You know, she said she, she feels like she's risking work by talking. Uh, but all of you were amazing in response to that on social media, whether you agree with bringing it up or not bringing it up. It's just the, the continued conversation we have off the podcast was is, is very impressive. I'm impressed with all of my listeners. It makes me wish I can do a, a call-in show. Um, cause I, I think you would have been, you would have made that, that interview with Roberta Freeman all that much better, but it's, it's still great to continue the conversation off the air. So just not just thank you for continuing to support and, and, and listen to the podcast, but just the, the way you react, not just with the, the straight guns and roses interviews, talking about the music, talking about touring, but when we get into heavy subjects, like race or depression or any of those things that the reaction and then the conversations, you are a very intelligent listener base. Even when there are disagreements, I very rarely find myself having to police you for lack of a better phrase, given the time that we are in. Uh, I will also say, I know Roberta, you guys saw it on social media. I, I put it out there. She's also very hurt by the lack of acknowledgement in the Rolling Stone article about Melissa Reese. First, let me say, I, I think I've said this since the beginning. I am a, I support Melissa Reese. I think she's awesome. I think she's been an awesome addition to the band. I wish they did more with her. I think it would be really cool if she was featured on one of the alleged new songs off the, in theory, Guns N' Roses' new album. I think she's awesome. I like what she does with Brain. I like her attitude. I, I'm in full support. But Rolling Stone printed an article about breaking the glass ceiling, which is used to, you know, breaking through a barrier, you know, a woman breaking through a male-dominated industry. And that's great, of course. But it neglected, at the time at least, to mention Roberta uh, and, and Tracy Emos and the, the horn section, you know, that there were females in Guns N' Roses before, and that really hurt Roberta. She just feels, I'm not speaking for her, this is how I, how I feel getting to know Roberta. I feel she is unheard, and that can be very frustrating. And it's, you know, I, my approach may have been different as far as not wanting to take away from Melissa and the good stuff that she's done, but, and you can, you can read the comments. A lot of you, it was a very, it was, it was a big thread on, on Twitter and, and Facebook about this. So there's a lot of back and forth, a lot of different opinions. You know, what makes a band member? Um, I think even getting into that is, is tricky because how many people have we spoken to on this podcast that were, you know, not, not just Gilby Clark, 
who some people consider a, a touring musician with GNR, but he was on albums. He was on one of the biggest, you know, uh, tours of all time. You and, and the same thing with Roberta. You get emotionally invested. I use sports analogies a lot. You can be the all-star player, but then there are role players. And those role players can not only help you achieve the heights that you are hitting, winning a championship or selling the records, whatever uh, metaphor you want to use, but they are as emotionally invested. You know, that's, that's a time in their life. Roberta, Gilby Clark, Matt Sorum, all these different people have given so much blood, sweat, and tears into their time in Guns N' Roses. And at this point in their life, they look back, and that's still a major highlight of their life, even though they've moved on. Gilby Clark, new music. You know, Roberta is out there touring still. It's not like they just are stuck. But it's just to be reminded that maybe you aren't remembered, if that makes sense. You know, like we Guns N' Roses fans, we know about, about Roberta Freeman. But does the average person? And I don't think it's about piggybacking on someone else's fame. Some old members will do that. Not with GNR, but I mean, if you can go into like the Bobby Blotzer trying to use the rat name, I mean, things like that are kind of weird. But these are people like Tommy Stinson is a great example. Loved his time in Guns N' Roses, but he's still making new music. And how does he make money off that new music? Because as Roberta said, she's not a millionaire, multimillionaire like Matt Sorum. They have to sell new stuff. And how do they sell new stuff? People have to know about them. So if, if and this was, this was weird. You know, Roberta, you know, tweeted at uh, Rolling Stone and, you know, actually Teddy Zigzag, I saw on Roberta's timeline when, when she posted that, he was, he was kind of hurt by it. He's like, you were a member. I was there. So that means Teddy is hurt as well. And that's not fair. I mean, these people, you know, when I think of Guns N' Roses, I think of them. I mean, it, it doesn't take away from the Appetite 5, but, you know, I think of them. I, I think now because of the podcast, I think of Chris Webber. I think of Rob Gardner, you know, Buckethead. I think of all these people and they all mattered. But that doesn't take away that Axel wrote or Izzy wrote, or Slash did this. It, it doesn't take away. It shouldn't take away. That's my opinion on it. So when Roberta was talking about it online, Rolling Stone did something very odd. They added in that Melissa was the first full-time uh, official member, that the, the women in the user illusion era were not considered full-time members. There was a, an edit made with no acknowledgement of the edit. That was something actually Teddy Zigzag noticed. I mean, come on. First of all, you got to acknowledge and edit. That's just like journalism 101. I don't know what that is about. So we'll see if this story is over. You know, I, I, Roberta's hurt. I think she wants an apology. I know a lot of you were upset that she was, ups that she was mad about an article about Melissa Reese. But I don't think it was so much about Melissa Reese as it was about, hey, what about me? I'm a woman. I'm a black woman. I had a fight to get where I was and where I am. What about me? And is she really wrong in saying that? I don't think so. Anyway, we'll see what we talk about next episode of Appetite for Distortion. Who knows? Meanwhile, if you want to submit guests, if you want to continue the, these conversations that we have, again, social media is the best way. 
And until the next episode, when will you see it? When will you hear it? Well, in the words of Axel Rhodes concerning Chinese democracy, I don't know as soon as the word, but you'll see it. Security, I'm going home.